0: All right, so this is one of the more challenging weeks um, to, to teach on because uh, Paul launches into this pretty long, involved story. I, I titled this message tonight a, uh, An Important Story and a Critical Issue. And, and I think one of the challenges is, number one, it's a long text to read though it is an interesting story, but it will have to be explained for you to kind of understand what's going on. Let me see if I can kind of give you a little background that'll help, okay? So if you remember, uh, this letter is a letter Paul wrote when he heard that this church, or actually a group of churches in an area called Galatia, had um, been evangelized by Paul. He'd been with them, he'd spent time with them, and then he had left, and then he had heard that some other false teachers had come in afterwards and had undermined the work of the gospel and the truth that they had been taught. And it had had such, um, a, a, such an effect on these churches that later he'll say that you're biting and devouring one another. It's caused all kinds of relationship problems. Um, they're, they're full of anxiety and anxiousness, all these kinds of things that happen when you lose uh, really your trust in the gospel of grace and begin to believe that it's up to you to keep the smile of God. And, and as soon as you do that, it's like taking a job. You know, it's one thing to have a job that's really boring, that you're overqualified for, and a lot of you at this time in life in the summers, maybe you're working some boring retail job and you're so much better than that, right? Um, but it's, it's really, it's awful to go to a job everyday knowing that you can't possibly do what is asked of you. Every day you know you're gonna walk into work and you're just gonna fail. That's what it's like trying to basically keep the smile of God because of how well you live. It's, it's misery, it's drudgery, or else you just kinda of have to check out and not think about it very much. And you know, that's why Woody Allen and I think many people today, uh, honestly they live um, believing in the power of distraction and not really having to think about things very much. That, that works. It, it does work for a while, especially with chemical uh, help um, at times, which is a college thing, right? Um, anyway, so to understand what's going on with, um, with, with Galatians, you have to understand that background. And I shouldn't even assume that you guys know, so the way the, 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 way the Jews understood the world, there were Jews and there was everybody else. And, and the everybody else are called Gentiles, okay? And what was going on in the early church, I'm talking like right after Jesus' life and death and then his resurrection, um, in the early days of the church, there was basically almost everybody was Jewish who became a Christian, okay? But eventually, other people who weren't Jewish became Christians. Now, that then raised the issue of do you actually need to obey some of these Jewish cultural practices, like eating certain foods, abstaining from certain foods, dressing in a certain way, washing in a certain ritually cleansing way before you partake in worship, all these sorts of things. As long as all the Christians were Jewish culturally, that's just kind of how they lived. But when these Gentiles become Christians, then the question comes up, oh, do they need to adopt these Jewish cultural practices, okay? So that's part of what's going on behind Galatians, is that there is a group of Jewish Christians who believe that everybody needs to become Jewish culturally to be fully pleasing to God. Now, this isn't the only way that this sort of kind of um, poison sneaks into the church. There are lots of ways that people can almost, whether explicitly or at least implicitly, kind of divide Christians into like different levels. Well, there's like, there's normal Christians and then there's spirit filled Christians, which is not a distinction the New Testament actually makes anywhere. There, there are all kinds of things that will, that, that people can use to divide or to sort of feel like they have one upmanship, but that's the issue that's going on here. And what happens is this group who's teaching that the Gentiles need to become Jewish culturally. And you'll you'll see here why this matters to us today in a second. They were constantly troubling the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was called particularly by God to be the apostle, which literally means sent one, to the Gentiles. He was particularly called to take the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles. That wasn't his idea. Isaiah chapter 42, God had promised about the Messiah, it's too small a thing for you just to be for the house of Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. So it was always God's intention for the gospel to go to the whole world. That wasn't something that Paul made up, but it did rock the boat, particularly with these Jewish Christians who thought everybody really needed to be Jewish to be truly pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Now, that group of false teachers we call the Judaizers, okay? And actually, almost every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament has something to do with that issue. It it was a big, big issue. You can even read in Acts chapter 15, the first church council, where they all get together and kind of decide, what are we going to do about this, this tension and this debate, okay? So it was a big deal in the early church, um, the, the, the Jewish uh, Christians were just uh, not all doing this, but they were, uh, it was causing all this problem. All right, so as you can imagine, um, when Paul starts preaching the gospel to Gentiles and they start coming into the church, it's disrupting everything, all right? So, you might say that's interesting, that's helpful to know, fine. Um, but what's happening is there's two things that these Judaizers have taught the Galatians that's really caused all kinds of trouble. The first is, um, Paul is subtracting some vital parts of the gospel. Basically what they were saying was, Paul like got you off on a good start. He just didn't tell you everything you need to do to really be pleasing to God. It would be like saying, well, you know, yes, you need to um, pray and ask God to forgive you and give your life to Jesus, but then you also need to make sure that you read the Bible every day. And reading the Bible every day is a great thing to do, okay? But it doesn't change what God thinks about you. And, And if you want to talk more about that, we can talk over coffee about what that means and as we go through galatians hopefully that will become more um more obvious as well Um, but this the other thing that they were saying is you know paul he wasn't one of the guys that followed jesus around so he's kind of like derivative he's like a second generation guy so it makes sense that he garbled part of the message okay so that's what these false teachers are saying now when we read this section you might feel like geez paul is being really defensive He's kind of prickly or something here. I want you to understand though, this is not just an interesting story. The reality is, if you believe what the Judaizers are teaching, you really do lose the gospel. Jesus plus anything equals salvation is basically bad news. Uh, Because Jesus plus anything you do, here's the problem, you're a variable. You're a constant variable, and you know I went to Berkeley College of Music, so I didn't study a lot of math. Uh, but I know that if there's a variable on this side of the equal sign, then the other side of the equal sign there's a variable too. I think that right, that works, right? Yeah. So if that, if that image helps you. All right, so we're going to read here, starting at verse 11. I'm going, to, I'm going to read verse 11 of chapter 1, and then we're going to dig into why this story matters and why this is a critical issue even today. What the heck does it matter whether you're circumcised or whether you eat certain foods? Why does that matter? Hopefully you're going to understand tonight. All right, so Paul says this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's true. You can read about that in Acts. Paul, whose former name was Saul, was one who was persecuting Christians when he was um, still living the life of Judaism. He writes about that in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to read more about that. And he says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, meaning God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem, which is where the rest of the apostles were hanging out, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, which is in Syria. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who you also know as Peter, he uses both names, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the lord's brother now whenever the the new testament uses the term lord they mean jesus himself so james the brother of jesus verse 20 in what i am writing to you before god i do not lie in other words this is serious stuff then i went to the regions of syria and cilicia and i was still unknown in person to the churches of judea that are in christ So he's like i went up there like 15 days but i don't really even know any of the churches Uh, in that whole region of Judea. They only were hearing it said, the people in Judea were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now I'm gonna explain this in a second. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So he was not circumcised as as a baby, and, and he was not forced to be circumcised. What's he talking about here? after 14 years he went up and he did lay before these other apostles here's the gospel i'm preaching but as i'm going to show you it's not to make sure he's teaching the right thing and he's like insecure about it it's to make sure they're on the same page because if they're not on the same page then the mission of god is in serious jeopardy so that's why it's a big deal all right yet because of this verse four because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Again, this is serious what he's talking about. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, because God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. The other apostles said they didn't say, yeah, you're kind of missing this. Let's help make sure you can learn the rest of what you need to be teaching. Okay, that's what he's saying. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, they're kind of the leading apostles in the early church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, and that's outside of Judea, this is a Gentile area, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, he, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing these Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now we're gonna get into that more next week about this confrontation that Paul has and why he has it. But for the story, I needed to at least read those couple verses. Let me pray and then uh, connect some dots for you here. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that this um, is not just made up fable, but this is real history that really matters. Help us to see and even to see how it affects the way we live even today as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that's a fine, interesting story. It's long. It's a longer passage than probably any other part of Galatians that we will do this semester. But it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to stop in the middle, right? Because it kind of all hangs together. Remember here a couple points. History and truth really does matter. There are a lot of religions and a lot of philosophies where the history doesn't really matter. It's the teachings, that are the key. It doesn't really matter whether the Buddha was actually a historical person. It's it's the teachings that are really key. But Christianity is very different than that. It is history, and it really matters if Jesus actually lived and if he actually died and actually rose from the dead. Paul will say in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are of all people to be most pitied. It really matters, okay? Christianity is not just some ideas, okay? And that means getting the story right really matters. But also the issue, not just the story, but the issue of whether Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish cultural practices to be fully acceptable to God gets at a central gospel issue that has troubled the church from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago, and still troubles the church today. How? How? What's the, what's the connection? Anytime, anytime we make a cultural issue essential for salvation or essential for you to be pleasing to God you have distorted the gospel. Remember last week I talked about this, and the word Paul uses for distorting earlier in chapter 1 is actually the word reverse. So if you, if you, turn, you actually turn the gospel around and it becomes no gospel, that, which means not even good news at all, because the word gospel literally means good news. Well, I'm going to invoke a friend of mine, Dr. Micah Edmondson. Some of you all know Micah because you go to his church, Koinonia, here in Nashville. He actually wrote this um, piece uh, a few years ago before he had actually moved to Nashville. Um, and he explains why this still matters. I put this quote on your outline for you because I thought it's, it's one that you'd like to see. In Galatians 2.11, right, that's the, the place where Peter kind of falls into this hypocrisy. Um, Paul knows that the Galatians have become infected with the theological error of legalism because some Jews refuse to have full and free fellowship with their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice this thing. Due to their behavior toward the Gentiles, Paul knows the Judaizers have made Jewish cultural practices part of the currency of acceptance in the household of faith. So by their action in not eating with the Gentiles, they have said what's not true, which is that you are like of a lower level in your relationship to God than we are. The fact that we won't eat with you is a way of preaching actually a false gospel. And we're going to see how that's why Paul says you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel is the way Paul rebukes him. It's really important to see why he says it that way, which we'll do next week. Listen, although, now let me just give this caveat. Some of you about what what, the rest of this quote some of you are going to be tempted to dismiss it where he talks about white supremacy. I urge you not to do that. But to hear the point he's making that is so central to Galatians and critical for you to understand why this still matters today. All right, Micah continues. Although we cannot uncritically map the distinctions between Jew and Gentile directly onto ethnic divisions in the church today, we are still taught the danger of thinking. Any cultural practice or distinction purchases our seat at God's table of acceptance. For Peter to give preference to the Jews was to participate in legalism that expressed itself through ethnocentrism. Evangelicals are good at spotting legalism when someone says Christians don't dance. That's kind of the old kind of legalism, you know, don't, don't dance, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. You maybe heard that. <laughs> but he says, do we recognize legalism in the heart that says, my people are better than yours? Mm-hmm. Throughout the history of the American church, white supremacy has functioned as a form of legalism. In colonial America, enslaved Africans were often denied formal membership in churches, relegated to the balcony during the worship services, forced to sit on the floor in shackles and to take communion after whites. Even today, many churches practice a soft separation, communicating in various ways that certain cultures are not welcomed on equal footing. When we force other Cultures to assimilate to our cultural practices in order to be accepted into our churches. It says something about how we believe people are accepted before God. Hear that again. When we force other cultures to assimilate to our cultural practices in order to be accepted into our churches, it says something. It preaches something about how we believe people are accepted before God. We need to ask ourselves, are we communicating something about the currency of acceptance with God simply in the way we relate or do not, do not relate across cultural lines? So I hope you see, culture really does matter. It always has. I, I, now sometimes it seems like just little squabbles about which musical style is better than another musical style, right? Those are some of the kinds of things. Or which kind of dress is appropriate for church and people disagree about these things and so often these disagreements are more like well i just know that i'm right and you're wrong usually when you don't actually have a real basis you just kind of know it's right and you know they're wrong that's usually when it's a cultural practice that's shaping you now i some of these are more complicated right and 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 so i don't want to make light of that we're going to talk about this a little bit more but i want you to see cultural Issues and where the line is between a gospel essential issue and a cultural issue or a cultural practice Has been a long difficult struggle for the Christian church since the very beginning But back to the text The Judaizers are troubling the church all over the place and they're actually very effective They're very effective for a couple reasons that Paul mentions here. Number one is Peter's hypocrisy. And, and that's a very intentional that Paul calls it hypocrisy because, as we're going to see, Peter is proclaiming that I, I trust in Jesus alone, but by the way he's acting towards Gentiles, he's saying, I trust in Jesus plus my Jewishness, which makes me better than you and means I can't actually be fellowshipping with you you might actually make me unclean before God. That was part of the Jewish law that God used, not as a forever and ever law, but as a way to say, I love the way Tim Keller says, worship is not a come-as-you-are party. You actually have to be clean to worship before God. Now, I, I know that maybe that freaks people out, and you're like, wait, we just read Isaiah 55 about how all who can come without money and without wine. Yes, but you don't come without a price needing to be paid. You don't have to pay it. But the price of admission is costly beyond your wildest dreams. But it's been paid. This is why 1 Peter 2, verse 6, he says, all of our spiritual sacrifices, your worship, is made acceptable through Christ Jesus. God does not accept our worship because we really, really mean it, because we sing so well, or because we've lived a pretty clean life that day. No, none of that stuff makes God pleased by our worship. And I wish there were more modern worship songs that got that point. I do think one of the subtexts of a lot of songs, unfortunately, is it's our sincerity that invokes the presence of God. And that's not true. The only way we can have worship of the true God is if our worship, even our best singing, is cleansed by the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, there's a verse we never sing, the last verse in Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. If you guys have been around, maybe you've been with us when we have sung that one. And the last, the last verse has this line, wash our souls and songs with blood, for by thee we come to God. And that's, that's so important, right? But Peter had undermined the truth of the gospel, he said he believed, by what he was doing. Even though God literally had showed him in a vision that Gentiles were to be welcomed and didn't have to become Jewish culturally, eating Jewish food to be acceptable to God. So Peter had a vision, <laughs> uh, he agreed with Paul in principle. When Paul went up, they shook hands, right? And yet, because he's a coward, he shrunk back, and without realizing it, perhaps, was actually putting a huge stumbling block for these Gentile believers who were looking to him and saying, wait, what's wrong with us? You used to eat with us, and now you don't anymore. Right? It's not just racism. It's a gospel issue. So that was one of the reasons the Judaizers were effective, is that Peter had actually sort of become a hypocrite. Second is that Paul had visited Jerusalem a couple times, and the Judaizers were giving a a story about that. You know, human beings are narratival. When we hear various things, we always try to craft it into a narrative that seems to make sense to us but you always need to be careful about jumping to conclusions before you've heard the full story. And that's what these Judaizers have done. They said, well, Paul went up to Jerusalem, and no wonder. He's like a second-level apostle, and he didn't make sure that he really had it right, so he kept going up there to check in with those guys, make sure he had the gospel right. And Paul's like, no, that's not what happened at all. Let me tell you the full story, okay? So he tells this story and he sets the record straight. Look, at the, look back at verse 11, back at the top of this text. He says only a divine revelation, a divine interruption can explain his conversion. Now, Paul, Paul had no desire to become a Christian. He had no interest in becoming a Christian. He was as zealous against Christians as you can imagine and God turned him around with a blinding light that shook him to the core. There's no other explanation for this 180 that happened to Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. And it actually was so remarkable, and if you remember, maybe some of you've heard this, the early church was pretty skeptical. As a matter of fact, when God speaks in a dream to this other guy and says, hey, you remember Saul? Oh yeah, <laughs> I know about him. Like he, he literally has warrants to like drag Christians to their death. Um, yeah, that guy. I want you to go. I want you to go tell him about Jesus. What? Yeah, trust me. That, that that was hard to believe. And Paul mentions it here. Like the people in Judea eventually heard over and over and over again. Yeah, you remember Saul, the guy who was like renowned for killing Christians. Well, he's a Christian now. And they praised God. Eventually, they believed it was true. But it was a big deal. So Paul's like, look. And and I love the way Paul says this. This is such a great insight into the heart of the gospel and the heart of what it means to be a Christian. He he says God set him apart. And and there's an irony and a wordplay there. You know why? Because the word Pharisee literally means set apart ones. So he was a Pharisee, a set apart one. He'd set himself apart. The Pharisees were like the Billy Grahams of their day. They were like the holy people that everybody loved. And there was a political dimension to it too, because the guy who was on the throne was a puppet king. He was a Roman puppet. He was Jewish, but he was a Roman puppet, King Herod. The Pharisees believed that until they refined their life, until they took up holiness and took it seriously, God would never deliver them from the Roman occupation. And so the Pharisees were basically the ones saying, we take holiness serious, and God is eventually going to answer our pleas and our prayers because he's going to see how seriously we take his kingdom and his calling, particularly the call to be holy. So that's who Paul was, a set-apart one. And then what does he say? It's one thing to set yourself apart. It's a whole other thing to be set apart by God. God set him apart. Paul's understanding of how he relates to God has completely been turned upside down. It's not about how you set yourself apart. It's does God set you apart. Man's wisdom says set yourself apart for God and he'll notice you. Learn to be a self-promoter. But the gospel is that God takes notice of us apart and even in spite of what we do. The gospel is a revelation. It's not something that is discovered or invented, right? And after his conversion, he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I went to Arabia and Damascus which proves he was preaching the gospel before he even met the other apostles and he does go to jerusalem three years later he says but only briefly in other words paul's saying i'm not peter's disciple i didn't get my gospel from him god revealed it to me 14 years later like i said he goes to jerusalem but again why it's not because he's unsure of whether he's preaching the truth It's to shut up the Judaizers. But he's nervous about it. And he has every right to be nervous, because think about this. It's a huge moment. It's the only time we know when Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, John, the apostle, and Paul all met in person. The only time we know that they met in person was this meeting that Paul talks about here. The stakes were huge. The Judaizers were disrupting churches all over the place, deceiving a bunch of people. And if the pillars of the church, those other apostles, sort of side with the Judaizers, it's going to wreak havoc upon the early church. And there was some reason to worry, because the other apostles, there's places where you're like, yeah, they they seem to be waffling a little bit about this. Paul seems to have grasped more clearly in these early days that Jewish cultural practices were not essential for salvation. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because God's people still get confused about cultural matters. The culture you were raised in brings all kinds of assumptions, but God calls us to think through these cultural assumptions uh, lay them down, before the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul models in his life, but it's not an easy thing to do. And we see the places where even the other apostles struggle with this. What assumptions do you have about church or music or dress that need to be examined? Maybe you've never really thought about it. So, you know, culture is this thing. It's like, it's like water for a fish. Right? It's invisible when you're in it. Unless something causes you to have to question your assumptions. Now, freshman seminar is actually supposed to do that. I don't know if if it has been doing that for you. But that's part of the purpose. Is for you not just to assume that everything you think is right. To be exposed to other people think differently about these things. That's actually helpful. And it can actually help your faith to be able to say, well, now why do I think about this? Uh, Sometimes you don't really think about why you do what you do, why you believe what you believe, until you come up against somebody who sees things very differently. That can be disorienting, kind of freak you out, but it also can be helpful. Um, Now, like Wendy and I took our family for three months to the south of France. I know that sounds like a picnic. It was actually hard. Um, We spent three months over there with little kids working with churches over in the south of France. And um, I I remember part of the orientation to, okay, now you're here and understanding like the churches, okay, there's topless beaches here. And what do you think about that? That, that We had these college student interns that were there and and the missionary was like, what do you think about that? Um, Is that a cultural issue or is that a gospel issue? I'm not gonna sell it for you, I'm not really sure. But I know that actually Christians around the world differ on some of these things. So some of these things you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Maybe, maybe not. Until you actually talk to other Christians who see things differently, some of these cultural issues are hard to discern and require a lot of thought and a lot of interaction, right? I remember um, years ago, um, we did some of this uh, music that we do in RUF with these retuned hymns. We actually got a grant from Calvin College to go do a little tour and play that music in some different churches. And um, because I'd much rather play electric guitar than acoustic guitar, I took my electric guitar. And uh, somebody wrote a little review, like, complaining about rock music in the church. And it was on our official denominations, like, news website. And, and stirred up all kinds of controversy. People posted comments and debates back and forth, and, um, and I responded to it um, with, with some thoughts about cultural subjectivity and musical style. Um, and what's interesting is we had a, I had a number of African-American pastors in our denomination who wrote me privately and said this is a good fight to have because if they can't accept what the music you guys do in RUF, <laughs> wait till they hear like what we do in our church. <laughs> and, you need, and, and you need to fight, you need to be the tip of the spear on this. Because until people call into question their assumptions about music that glorifies God, there's going to be a division in the church. I hope you know 10 a.m. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in our world, in our culture. And it shouldn't be that way. But this is why this stuff matters. This is why it matters. We have to beware of thinking that ours is the only pure, true culture. And sometimes it just slips in so easily you don't notice it. I'll sometimes be arguing with people about you know, whether you can do like old hymns to new music and whether that's even appropriate. And I'll get into these discussions and sometimes I'm like, okay, that, I think that's just a cultural preference. But sometimes people raise these arguments, I'm like, I think you've actually just committed the Galatians heresy. Like, you really think that Eurocentric classical music is the only music that glorifies God? Like, that's not just a cultural preference. If you think that, we've got a much more serious issue. We do. And it's a serious issue that we have to be able to think through. Second thing, though, that Paul does is he says, and this is the, the most important thing, and we'll talk more about this next week, but let me just say a few things. He sets the record straight, not just with the story of what happened, but with regard to who really preaches the true gospel. The question is, are the Judaizers right in telling all Christians you need to be circumcised? No, they're not, because God never said it. And like I said, it reverses the order of the gospel. It says faith plus circumcision equals the smile of God. And if it does that, you've actually destroyed the gospel. It seems like not a big deal. It's a really big deal. And you see the way he talks about it here. Uh, Look at it. He goes, verse uh, 4 of chapter 2. Because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. And you'd be like, Really? I mean, I'm sure circumcision as an adult male is no picnic, right? That's not what Paul's upset about. As a matter of fact, he had, he had two, he had two like younger sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. Titus, he refused to let be circumcised. Why? Because he wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. And if you're saying he has to be circumcised, well, then I'm going to say, hell No. Because for me to submit to that is to actually undermine the gospel. And it's important that we not let you spy out the freedom we have in Christ. Now, guys, I don't know how many of you have ever heard a sermon on freedom, Christian freedom. Probably not many. Probably not many. But Jesus said in John chapter 8, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And Paul here says, I had to oppose them to their face so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you rather than them spying out our freedom and putting us back into slavery. Do you feel like what a big deal this is? What a big deal this is. And again, here's the thing, it's so subtle. It's so subtle. It's hard to see it in your heart, but it's always lurking trying to say, well, yes, I know you have, you have Jesus, but don't you have a little extra that you can rely on to just make sure that you've covered all your bases? Martin Luther said that faith in Christ is a living, daring hope. It's an all-or-nothing kind of hope. It's not, well, I've tried to be as good a person as I can, and then I have Jesus to sort of like make up the gaps. That's not Christian faith. As a matter of fact, it puts you into bondage he says. The message of, 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 that Paul's trying to get here, it's hard to get, but let me try and say it this way. What qualifies you to receive the gospel? Sometimes that's, that's where the subtle poison slips in. You think there's something we have to do. I remember, um, I remember once talking to somebody who was, like, in, a, in kind of a place of real distress, and Some, somebody close to them had died, and it had made them question and wonder about their own death and where they would go, and I said, well, you know, I, I explained and talked about the gospel, and this person had been raised in a Christian church, so they were familiar with that, uh, but I remember she said, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, come to God just because I'm, like, scared and needy. And I'm like, Okay, like, if you could have a perfect motivation, then you would not need Jesus. Like, Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up, get your motivation right, and then come to me. Or maybe, maybe this image. You don't have to clean yourself up for Jesus to marry himself to you. I, I tell couples when I do their weddings, which I love to do weddings, by the way, but I always tell them, like, we dress up either by faith or naivete because nobody deserves to wear white on their wedding day, really, really. And yet, it's a picture of the gospel. And, and, and I, I tell them to, to live out this marriage, you need more than the excitement of this day. You need what this day is picturing And even when you say these vows to one another, you need to hear the one who says vows to you that are not until death do us part. They were actually ratified by death. Therefore, death can't even unbreak them. Right? You don't need to clean yourself up for Christ to marry you. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. If you've never memorized a verse in the Bible, go look up Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love, demonstrates his love, because we need a demonstration. It's hard to believe. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't get any better than that, but it's so hard to believe that that's enough. We feel like, yeah, but I just, I just don't know. Like, does he really know, does he really know, like, about how I've acted since I knew better? Like that's the one that sometimes is really hard for us to believe, yes he does. Beware, there are always people looking to try to add something, something so subtle sometimes. Sometimes it's your own heart, which wants to sort of cover your bets, add a little more to your resume, to make extra sure that God will love you. But you can't do it, It puts you into bondage. It undermines the gospel and it's hypocrisy that will kill you. We'll talk about that some more next week. Let me pray and then we're going to invite the, the team up to sing one more closing hymn.